Hey, everybody. Welcome to Uncomfortable. I am Amna Navaz. And you know, on this show, each week, we try to talk about things that we think are dividing America right now. Um, And we have a special guest every week just to go one-on-one and try to tackle not only what people believe to be true, but why they believe what they do. So with me today, I'm very excited to say, is actress, comedian, uh, advocate, Jersey girl, the list goes on, Maysoon Zayed. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited. Did I get all the descriptors right? You did. Did I miss anything major? I was so afraid you'd say activist instead of advocate, so I was happy. Oh, okay, cool. You think there's a big difference between the two? Well, activists don't shower. (laughs) Maysoon. Let's talk about why you're here. Uh, why Not here in the room, like why you're here on planet Earth. One of the things I love to do is to ask people just about their own life stories. I think what people choose to share about how they grew up and who they are is really super interesting, not to push too much pressure on you. But tell me about how you grew up. Tell me about your family. I like that because it's like the superhero origin story. Exactly. So my origin story is um, I'm born and raised in the great state of New Jersey. And my parents are Palestinian, and they both immigrated here. Mm -hmm. I'm the youngest of four girls. And the doctor who delivered me was drunk. So on the day that I was born, I lost oxygen. And as a result, I have a disability called cerebral palsy. It's a neurological disorder. It totally, like, manifests itself differently in every person. In my case, I shake all the time. And uh, I can run, I can dance, I can walk, but I can't stand up. So I'm a sit-down stand-up comic. Now, you have actually jo- you've joked about this, saying the doctor was drunk who delivered mm-hmm. you. Was it actually true? It is actually it? true. Okay. And uh, we won a lawsuit, so I feel very good about, <laughs> about that. You were raised in New Jersey. Born and raised in New Jersey. Yep. Spent all of my summers in the West Bank. Yeah. yeah. Tell me about that. So uh, when my friends went down to the Jersey Shore, my parents would send us back to Palestine because they were afraid that if we forgot our roots, we'd grow up to be Britney Spears. So it was really helpful for me, believe it or not, because I got to live in two different worlds. I got to live in America, and then I got to experience life under occupation in the West Bank. We come from a village next to Ramallah called Deir de Buen. And what was also really amazing about it is I believe the origins of my comedy career Hmm. come from my summers with my grandmas and my aunties in the motherland. Why was that? There was no TV. There was no internet. I'm not that old. They were backward. Um, (laughs) And so my aunties would sit around cross-stitch and gossip. And I would sit with them instead of like going out in the blazing heat. I would sit with them Mm. and they'd be gossiping about neighbors and weddings. And I became the star of those gossip sessions because no one was as quick or cruel as I was. So, you know, we'd be talking about a wedding and I'd be like, she looked like a broomstick. She's the first person I've ever seen that didn't look good as a bride. And I was like five, six years old, gossiping, cracking jokes. And (laughs) and I think that's where it all started for me. Tell me about your family. You're the youngest of four girls. I'm the youngest of four girls. A pretty impressive dynamic there. So I believe that the fact that I didn't have brothers really influenced how driven me and my sisters are. Really? Because we were raised as men. 
We were. Yeah. We were totally raised as men. We were held to the standard that culturally boys were usually held to. So my parents weren't interested in getting us married off. Mm. They were interested in college degrees. And, like, no one was allowed to get married until they had a degree. Yeah. And uh, my whole family is overachievers. My sister is an ambassador. My other sister was a loan officer. And I have a pharmacist as a sister. My nephew yeah. is a Harvard Law School graduate who is in JAG. Like, we're not allowed to just have fun. So when I became a comedian, yes. the whole family was really worried. And they were like, we need you to become a lawyer. We have figured out that law is what you can do with your disability. Because I couldn't be a heart surgeon. That yeah. would just be totally unwise right. with my coordination. So I should have become a lawyer. And so what I did was I went to Arizona State University. Yeah. And I majored in theater because technically you can become a lawyer with a theater degree. This is the argument you made to your parents? No, I lied. <laughs> and they didn't know I was a fine arts major until they came to the graduation. Really? And they were like, How did why is over? the pre-law graduation in the theater building? And I was like, here's the thing. I got a BA in theater, but I can still become a lawyer. And then I lucked out, and my comedy career actually took off. And because I became successful as a comedian, they were very ready to accept it because they were proud of the fact that I was talking about stuff so close to them, whether it was being Palestinian, whether it was having a disability yeah. or being, you know, a proud woman. They loved the work that I was doing. How did they, as your parents, when you were growing up, were any of you, do any of your sisters have disabilities? No. No. Mm -mm. How did they talk to you? about CP and about your place in the world? What did you learn from them? It's very interesting. I was always aware of the fact that I was disabled, but I was never treated differently than my sisters were. So what my parents did first and foremost was they made sure to treat me equally. Mm -hmm. This is really important for parents out there with kids with disabilities. You don't want to treat them differently, and you also don't want to neglect their siblings because you're so focused on them. Mm. The second thing is that my parents weren't trying to cure me. It's very dangerous when parents won't accept the fact that their kids have a disability. So instead of trying to cure me, they tried to make me the best me that I could be. And in my case, my parents were told that I would never walk. Now, this is so important. There's absolutely no shame in not walking or using any mobility device you need. Mm -hmm. But at the time that I was growing up, ADA, the Americans with Disabilities Act, hadn't even been signed. Right. So it was really important for them for me to be functional in the world that I lived in. And my father went against all recommendations, and he decided to teach me how to walk. And he had a mantra, and his mantra was, you can do it. Yes, you can, can. And it's my mantra to this day in life. I try. And if I can't after I try, that's fine. There are some things that we can't do. The idea that the only disability is a bad attitude is simply not true. No matter how good someone's attitude is, stairs won't turn into a ramp. But what I was taught was try. You don't know what you can do until you try. You dedicated um, your 2014 TED Talk, which I want to get to in a minute, too, because that is how millions of people came to know you and your story and your work and your voice. But you dedicated that to your dad. Why did you do that? I did, and my mother to this day is still really angry. <laughs> so can we dedicate this to my mother, the Big amazing Rebheya Ali? <laughs> <laughs> dedicated to her. Done. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I lost my father in 2012, and it was the most 
devastating thing that could ever happen in my life. And I didn't know how I was ever going to go back to being a comedian without joy. He was joy. He was my hero. He was my advocate. And he was funny and fun. And when it came time for me to do the TED Talk, it was literally only a year after he had passed away. And I felt like the only thing that could get me through that talk was to do it for him to take everything he taught me in my entire life and put it into those 15 minutes. Did you feel like you accomplished that? I did. I made one big verbal flub during the talk that still haunts me. But other than that, I felt like I did. Wait, now I have to ask, what was it? Because I've listened to it. I say, uh, in the TED Talk, I say, disability is as visual as race. What I was supposed to say was visible disability that is, the is one as thing visual that as race. Oh, okay. And it was such a slight yeah. to people with invisible disabilities. Oh. I erased half of my community by forgetting one word on this grand stage. So if I could do it all over again, I would add that word. <laughs> but you say my community now. You have become one of the loudest, most recognized voices for people with disabilities in America in just the span of a few short years. But um, you mentioned earlier, you studied theater, like you wanted to be a performer. You still are a performer. You're still an actress and you still perform stand-up comedy. Did you want to be an advocate? So when I was growing up, I had a dream. And like most Muslim girls, my dream was to be on the daytime soap opera General (laughs) Hospital. And Amna, to this day, my dream is to be on the daytime soap opera General Hospital. But when I tried to audition for TV shows, I was basically shunned by Hollywood. The reality is disability is the most underrepresented minority in media. Hmm. We are 20% of the population and only 2% of the speaking roles you see on TV. And 95% of those roles are played by non-disabled actors. So I had a really uphill battle, and I wasn't getting cast in anything. And I spoke to my acting coach, Tanya Berezin, and she said, look for people who look like you. Hmm. And so I did, and I saw Richard Pryor, I saw Ellen, I saw Margaret Cho, and I said, you know what, I'm gonna do stand-up comedy. I'm gonna get really famous, and then General Hospital will have to give me a guest role. Then they can't ignore me. And that is exactly how I got into it. A year after I started doing stand-up comedy, 9-11 happened. And I had met my comedy partner in crime, Dino Bidala, mm-hmm. a year before 9-11. And so after 9-11, Dean reached out to me. And he said, what do you think about doing a show with Arab comedians? Mm-hmm. Arabs are getting such a bad rap in media. Let's battle those negative images with comedy. And let's also get casting directors to cast Arab people in roles other than taxi drivers and terrorists. Because Arabs, believe it or not, we were like the grandfathers of comedy in America. Danny Thomas, Jamie Farr, Vic Tabak. Mm-hmm. And then suddenly we had been reduced to these really stereotypical roles. Yeah. So we started the New York Arab American Comedy Festival, which is now in its 14th year, to wow. combat that negativity. So I made my name as the Arab JLo, not as a disability advocate. Mm-hmm. I didn't become an advocate until I became like the unwilling Muslim messiah because... <laughs> 
I went on Countdown with Keith Oberman to talk about Saudi Arabia as a comedian. Mm -hmm. And when I got home that night, I Googled myself like any egomaniacal actress would. That's what we do. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was being attacked by so many people. For what? And what it was was, it is very rare to see a person with a disability on television talking about anything other than being disabled. Mm-hmm. So America was playing a game of guess what's wrong with her. People were like, she had a stroke. It's Botox gone bad. She looks like she had dental work. And they were trying to guess what was wrong with me, mm-hmm. which, by the way, I don't think disability is wrong. It's a natural part of life. And anyone can join our club at any time. Everyone's welcome. What was that like for you, though, to read those, especially because you went there to talk about something that was important to you and important at that time in your life, and to come home and to read those comments? So I had never been ashamed of my disability. Mm-hmm. And that's not common for people with disabilities. A lot of people try to pass and, you know, pretend like they don't have a disability. Other people find themselves undesirable because they're disabled. I mean, I joke and I call myself the lost Kardashian. Up until that moment, I was like, I'm a sexy single Arab and I'm great. And everybody thinks I'm the Arab J-Lo and this is amazing. And in that moment, I was like, I never want to go on television again. Mm -hmm. I'm a joke. People are disgusted by me. Nobody's listening to me. And I was really broken in that moment. And like a week later, Countdown with Keith Oberman called me to have me on again. And I had to make a decision. And my decision was, do I go back to my really nice, safe life of being a stand-up comic, the only person with a mic, and not be made fun of? Or do I go out there loud and proud and let other disabled people know we are not grotesque? We do deserve a platform, and we can do this work just as well as our non-disabled counterparts. And I decided I had to do it because, again, my dad, you can do it. Yes, you can, can. And so I did it, and I went back. When you talk about it now, you're, I mean, it's in your comedy, it's in your work, but you have control, right? It's your microphone, it's you on stage. And I'm curious about what happens when we don't see you, when you're not on stage performing and just living your life, which is, you know, 95. I know you work a lot, but the, I work the, a lot. the rest I of think, the time. I think the rest of it is honestly like 12%. So <laughs> I sleep three hours a night. I do. Do you really? I do. What I hours sleep. are those? 3.30 a.m. to 6.30 a.m. Regardless doing? of what time zone I'm in. What are you doing till 3.30 in the morning? Well, I travel a lot for my job, right. so I have to fly a You're lot. You're doing stand-up a lot, right? I do stand-up, and yeah. I do public speaking. Yeah. I do a lot of public speaking, and I also spend tons of time um, in Palestine. I go back to Palestine all the time. Mm-hmm. The second season of my web series, Advice You Don't Want to Hear, I film there. Mm-hmm. Um, but let's be honest. What I'm mostly doing till 3.30 in the morning is tweeting and watching Law & Order. I watch an immense amount of Law & Order. Does that count as work? Well... The tweeting actually counts the as The tweeting work. does, right? Because tweeting is now the new open mic. Yeah. That's where you try out your jokes. That's why you, where you try out your, you know, different premises. I came up with my 99 names for Trump on Twitter. Oh, you know, congratulations. Yeah. Thanks. All 99. <laughs> 90. Well, in Islam, I'm, I'm Muslim. 
And in Islam, there's 99 names of God. Mm -hmm. So I decided to have 99 names of the devil, a.k.a. Donald Trump. So I have those now, too. I'm not political. Yeah, clearly not. Clearly not at all. That 12% of time or whatever it is. I guess what I'm curious about when you say, you know, you're going on auditions and you're not getting the roles. What do people I stopped auditioning what do you, in 2007. You did? Yes. But prior to that, what did people say to you? Like, what is the message It was that you amazing. Get? It was amazing. I actually, yeah. I would walk into auditions. Some people would let me audition sure. and just wouldn't call me back. Other people, I would walk in the room and they would say, no, thank you. Literally, you just walk no, in. No, thank you. And- Without even saying my name, they'd just say, no, thank you. And cerebral palsy is really interesting because... If you don't know I have a physical disability, I kind of look drunk. And I didn't have the confidence early in my career to walk in and be like, hi, I'm Mason Zay, don't worry about the shaking. Because you don't want to start off an audition with something that people consider negative. Hmm. So I just never addressed it. And the reason I say that I stopped auditioning is because now people know exactly who I am. Mm -hmm. Not everybody, not the whole world, but the people who are calling me in to audition know who I am. So they already know that I have a disability, and that's why they are calling me. But one of the things you're able to do, like when you walk into the room or when you take the mic on stage, is you kind of take the air out of the room right away by just acknowledging what people are going to notice anyway. I do that with my stand-up. Yes. So when I was doing commentary on the news, I refused to acknowledge my disability unless it was the topic of conversation. Right. So as God is my witness, I had someone suggest to me one time, how about we put in your credits writer, comedian, cerebral palsy? And I was like, cerebral like palsy the, ain't a job. The, yeah. In the lower in sort of graphics. Wow. Yeah. And I was like, it's not a job. Stand-up comedy is totally different. Yeah. When you do stand-up comedy, you need the audience on your side, and you need them to be comfortable. So when I first started doing stand-up comedy, I would get on stage and I would say, I'm a Palestinian Muslim virgin with cerebral palsy from New Jersey. If you don't feel better about yourself, maybe you flip and should. And the idea was... I wanted them to know I had a disability, and I wanted them to know that that wasn't all I was about. Right. But if I didn't tell the people watching me that I had a disability, they would think I was nervous or drunk. And neither of those things are comforting for an audience, and they don't get them on your side. So I do do jokes about disability because it's part of my life. And Mm -hmm. I talk about personal things on stage. So I do joke about it. And people are like, oh, my God, you tell jokes about disability. And I'm like, everybody jokes about disability. The difference is I happen to have one. To that point, though, one of the other things you said that struck me in a recent interview was how when you were growing up, social media wasn't a big thing. It was when I was growing up. But now, if you are a kid, most likely somewhere on Instagram or Twitter or Facebook or whatever, it's really easy to get made fun of by anonymous strangers, even by people you know, with the comfortable distance of, you know, a keyboard between you. And it's also relentless. Yeah. So I happen to be very lucky. I grew up in a very small town. I've had the same seven best friends since I was five years old. I was never bullied, and I was never made fun of until social media. That's when it started. As an adult. As an adult. Later in life. As an adult and as a comedian who had spent a decade on stage dealing with hecklers. So when I get, you know, trolled online, it's fun for me. It's like whack-a-mole. You know, I have a strategy. First, I, I try to educate. 
first I educate. Yeah. So someone will be like, you know, I loved your TED Talk, but you're going to hell if you don't accept Jesus. And then I'll tell them, you know, I do accept Jesus. He's a prophet in my religion. Can you accept that he looked like me and not like you? And that's me educating them. Mm -hmm. If they refuse to learn, then I mock them because I'm a comedian and I like getting in that sucker punch. And then I block them. That's the order of things. Yeah. Then. And you stick I to give that. them the chance to be educated. Yeah. And a lot of people say that it doesn't work on social media. I have seen it work. You have. I've seen it How? work with parents of kids with disabilities. I've seen it work with people who hate Muslims or fear them. When people what respond positively <laughs> to you or acknowledge your points. Like, what do you mean when you say it works? So because I think this is a tool that a lot of people yeah, would want to use. Yeah. So yeah. when I educate yeah. and I tell them something they didn't know. Some people will actually come back and say, oh, I didn't know that, and then ask me another question. Yeah. And I'll link them to an article, or I'll explain something to them, yeah. and I'll kind of defy the stereotype that they had. Yeah. And I'm amazed by the number of people who have been misinformed, who actually appreciate learning the truth. Yeah. Well, one of the things, the reason I mentioned when you walk on stage sometimes with your with your comedy um, I prefer you limp on stage. I, I limp on stage. Is that <laughs> a lot of other people, maybe most other people who aren't performers, would see P can't do the same thing, right? Like if they're just walking into a store or wherever it is that they're walking into, yeah. people are going to assume things about them or yeah. wonder things about them. And, uh, you know, most most people out there don't know what that's like. Um, which is why I'm asking about the other part of your yeah. life, that 12% of your life, when you're not on stage yeah. and you're just out there being an everyday citizen, what is that like? What do you think people don't understand about uh, about CP, about living with a visible disability? This, I think one of the main things that people don't understand is that people with disabilities aren't all happy snowflake angel babies that don't grow up. We think of people with disabilities as infantile. So when I, you know, the fact that we date, we get married, some of us have kids, that is really shocking to people that I meet. Is it really? Yes. People are surprised so, by that? So when I was doing stand-up comedy, I got engaged while I was doing stand-up comedy. I'm married now for seven years. Mm -hmm. Hopefully I won't make it past 10, but for now I'm still married. But when <laughs> I said that I got engaged... Normally, when you say I'm engaged, people say congratulations. Right. When I said I was engaged, people would go, really? And then the next question out of their mouth is, is he disabled too? Yeah. Really? Yeah. And that, that's a few people here and there? No, that's, that's a, a lot of people. Wow. And then I got married. And a year after I got married, people would always say to me, so are you still married? So like the idea that... I was married and an adult and I was a real relationship hmm. was something that they couldn't comprehend. What do you think it like why this is crazy that we're having this conversation like this because why what is missing in our society? Talk to me about the last time you saw a romantic disabled lead or a sexy image of disability in a magazine hmm. or disability talked about in any mainstream way that wasn't pitying. You know, I talk about we're only allowed to have three storylines, hmm. either heal me, you can't love me because I'm disabled, or kill me. There is a series of movies that come out that are all about how much better the lives of people around the disabled person are once they kill themselves. Me before you, million dollar baby, and so on and so forth. It's, it's a recurring theme. And by the way, like, 
people with disabilities face an enormous enormous amount of violence. There's a day of mourning for people with disabilities that have been killed by their caretakers. This is a reality in our lives. When we talked about bullying, it used to be that you'd be bullied at school, you would come home and you'd say, Mom, I don't want to go to school tomorrow. Now they come home and they're relentlessly bullied online Mm -hmm. and in texts in addition to being bullied at school. One of the things that we see very often is, you know, police shootings. Mm -hmm. One of the things that's missing is the fact that 50% of all people killed by the police are disabled. 50%. 50%. This is an actual report and research, which I'll send you the link to. 50% are disabled because people are not trained to deal with disability. So one of the best quotes I've ever heard, and it's not mine. I don't know who said it. It was on Twitter. They said, when an officer is yelling at an autistic person mm-hmm. and flashing lights at them and asking them to comply. What they're ask- actually asking is for them not to be autistic. If a deaf person is told to put their hands up and they can't hear it, that's a problem. If I look like I'm drunk while I'm driving, that's a problem. And there's a lot of violence that people with disabilities face. Women with disabilities are three times more likely to be physically, uh, sexually assaulted than their non-disabled counterparts. But to your earlier point, you think better and more frequent mainstream representation in movies, TV shows, everything. Do you think that that would help? I think it would help. I, I think that it would help on many different levels. Mm -hmm. I don't know how much it would help to curb violence, but I do think it would help the quality of life that we have. For example, like, there's nobody on Sesame Street, no Muppet in a wheelchair. Wouldn't it be great if there was a Muppet in a wheelchair and from a very young age, children were taught to accept disability Mm -hmm. instead of fear it? Because we don't have these mainstream images, I always say, there's this show, Dora the Explorer. And there's a character called Swiper. Mm -hmm. And Swiper steals things. Let's chop off his arm. Have Swiper be an amputee and expose people to that. If kids don't have fear and they treat you as an equal, you won't be bullied. If parents don't have fear and they have a child, right now, I talk to a lot of parents who say, I mourn the normal baby I didn't have, instead of celebrating the disabled child that they do. People bring those concerns to you? They will say those things to you? Why why do you think they do that? I'm safe. I'm funny. I I think. I don't know. Mm. They have no boundaries. I don't know. (laughs) But I feel like if parents... A lot of times the first disabled person they meet is their child, and they don't know how to cope with it. I think if we had more positive images as opposed to we're charity cases, we're a drain on the system, we have no hope, I think that that would give parents more hope and maybe they would be less likely to reject the disabled child and maybe more accepting. Maybe it's a pipe dream. Maybe we're hopeless. I don't know. You talk about your faith a lot, too. I do. You do? And I'm, I'm devout. <laughs> I love my religion. <laughs> <laughs> but you take a lot of flack for it, not just on social media. Um, it, it's, I mean, it's no secret, right? There's Islamophobia has been on the rise um, over the past decade or so in the States. So which, I don't know if this is even a fair question. It is. Is it harder? Is there, like, is it a tougher battle? I know what you're going to Yeah. People always ask me, like, which minority status is the worst? Which, and I'm going to tell <laughs> not you. Not that you can separate, It's though. being a woman. Really? It is. 
Why? It is. Uh, nobody knows I'm Muslim unless I tell them. Yeah. Right? People <laughs> really think that all Muslim women cover their hair. And we don't. And actually, the majority of Muslim women do not choose to cover their hair. But the only images we ever see of women in Islam are them as oppressed and covered. Mm -hmm. So I've, you know, pitched myself to go on TV and talk about Islam. And they'll say, well, but she's not practicing. And because I'm like, because I don't cover my hair. And I'm like, I practice every damn day. And I'm like, I said, damn. And, <laughs> you know, um. But what I think is... is But is, do you think that's something in the larger conversation? That's something... That's within the community then. That's not on... No, no, no. ...people who aren't... Oh, no, no, no. Yeah? I have never had a single person... I have never... Hmm. This is this is true, and I know, again, I'm an anomaly. Hmm. Number one, I've never been threatened by anyone who identifies as Muslim or Arab. Hmm. And I have done stand-up comedy uncovered in Arabic, uncensored in the Middle East. And I've never had that happen. Hmm. Two, I have never had anyone question my faith that is of my faith. They'll fight me on my opinions about faith when I say, you know, the Quran doesn't actually say that women have to cover their hair. Mm -hmm. It just says cover. And to me, that means bits. And my bits are covered. They'll fight me on that. Yeah. But they will not fight me on my faith. On your faith. It's people who are trying to amplify Muslim voices who silence mine because I don't look what they think Islam should look like. You, uh, your family's of um, Palestinian origin, yes. right? Yes. And you go back quite a bit still, right? Yeah. Tell me about that. Tell me about the work you do there. Um, so <laughs> about a decade ago, I started doing work in Palestine to work with kids who had physical disabilities to try and mainstream them into the public school system. Mm -hmm. When I started public school uh, in New Jersey, New Jersey yeah. originally they wanted to send me to a school for children with Down syndrome. And my parents fought the system. They won, and they had me mainstreamed. I do not believe that if I had been sent to the special school that I would still be doing the work I'm doing. So I wanted to take that to the Middle East and help children with physical disabilities get mainstreamed. Mm -hmm. So I started working with you know technology and interpreters and speech therapists to try and mainstream them. Unfortunately, it's gotten extremely overwhelming because the numbers are so big that it needs... Of people who need help. Who need help. Yeah. Yeah. That it's much bigger than me. Yeah. And so I took a two-year hiatus from doing the disability work mm -hmm. so that I could become a huge television rock star okay. and have the money to fund the kind of work so I want to do with kids. working towards that but right now. Do the TED Talk, which was translated into 41 languages. Wow. I'm still doing disability advocacy mm -hmm. because a lot of people in, you know, places like Malaysia or Venezuela or Arkansas didn't ever see a functional disabled person. So I have parents reach out to me and ask for advice. I have people with disabilities reach out to me and ask for me for advice. And I still go back and forth all the time, you know, to my little village. I have a home back there, you know, I'm bi-continental instead of bi-coastal. Um, and now I'm doing a lot of filming. Yeah. And I just filmed a web series there because whenever you see images of Palestinians, they're like throwing rocks or like burned in rubble. So I wanted to show the life that I know there. What do you show so people? I shot at an ice cream parlor. Mm -hmm. I shot in a pizza place and in an amphitheater and at a checkpoint. 
and under an olive tree. And it's like, visit Palestine. Because I showed the world that I lived in, mm -hmm. but it wasn't about being Palestinian. It's called advice they don't want to hear, and I just give people advice they don't want to hear on random topics. So what I was talking about had nothing to do with the checkpoint behind me or the olive tree You were tree just there at me. the checkpoint giving people advice. And I wanted to yeah. show people that we're human. I mean, it's so interesting because I've worked in media for such a long time, yeah. and people consider Palestinian controversial. So I'd be like, I want my character to be Palestinian. And they'd be like, no, you can't do that. And I would ask, what other nationality is it controversial to be? You can't name a single one. No one says, we don't want to have a Taiwanese character on television because of one China. Mm. Or, you know... But being Palestinian is considered controversial just by being Palestinian. So I wanted to show we're human. We're diverse religions. There's Christians and Muslims and Buddhists and Mormons. And I wanted to show we eat pizza and we also, you know, sacrifice lambs every once in a while. Every now and again. <laughs> every now and again. The, the idea that mainstream representation, and particularly in entertainment, can go a long way towards changing conversation and perceptions and all those things. We've seen that before, right, in the States. So what are you, what are you working to do? What's the goal? I know you've, you've pitched yourself, or not yourself, but you want to see like a Muslim bachelorette. I do. Do you think that would be great? I would love to see, I would love to see a disabled bachelorette <laughs> also. <laughs> uh, yeah, a Muslim bachelorette would be great. Yeah. Um, what what am I trying to do? Yeah, what's the goal? What's the okay. next sort of like, so, this is the thing that I want to do that will mission, change the conversation. Right? Give me your mission. So my mission is to win an Emmy. Now, um, <laughs> my mission is, first of all, I want to mainstream disability. I really do. I how want, do you do that? I'm going to tell you how I okay. do it. Yeah. Like, I want there to be more disabled co-hosts on daytime television. Um, the View has been on television for 20 years. They've never had a visibly disabled co-host. They've represented all other walks of life, but we're not there. And that goes for everything. So, like, why can't we have a gladiator on Scandal who hmm. happens to be a wheelchair user or a deaf host or we're just not mainstream? I want people to cast people with disabilities in roles that aren't written as disabled. We can be the wacky best friend or the teacher and not just be the guest star for that very special episode. As far as Islam goes, it's much bigger. Okay. And I cannot believe in 2017 I live in a place where Muslim bigotry is so mainstream, where hating Muslims is completely acceptable. When Ben Carson said that a Muslim shouldn't become president, I thought that the media would be like, this man should be disqualified. This is clear bigotry. Instead, the response was, should a Muslim be allowed to be president? They debate hate. When it comes to Islam, hate is debated. Mm -hmm. So I want to fight for our right to true equality in this country. I don't care if you hate Islam. I really don't. I don't care if you think it's clownish and you think that we're terrible people and calls. I don't care. As long as I have equal rights in this country and I can feel safe being loud and proud about my religion, I'm fine with you hating me. I'm not fine with what's happening now, which is, I feel, talking about Islam like it's not religion, I don't feel safe. 
I see Muhammad Ali's son getting flagged in an airport, and I know that that's going to be me, and I travel so much, and I don't want this to be the reality. And I don't know how to battle it other than by being me, other than by being someone who symbolizes the truth, which is the opposite of the myth that they portray us. Then there's women. Mm. And I know it's too big, but this is my greatest mission. I want to curb or stop violence against women. I don't think it's okay that we send our kids to college with the fear that they have a one in four chance of being sexually assaulted before they graduate. When I'm on stage, I always say, I shouldn't feel safer walking in a war zone than I do on an American University campus. And the reality is I do. Mm-hmm. So just minor things. Just a few things yeah, here I there also want to wanna invent something that translates what cats are thinking. Oh. <laughs> Why? Is this where you talk about your cat? I knew you were going to work your cat in the competition I was trying. somehow. I was trying, yeah. Go for it. What's your cat's name, Missoon? My cat's name is Beyonce. Why is your and cat named Beyonce? My cat's name is Beyonce is because I can't have children. I, because if I get pregnant, I'll drop dead. And when I try to adopt, uh, people with disabilities are shunned by the adoption process. Um, we're disqualified in many Have you been cases. trying to adopt? We tried to adopt for six years, and then I gave up because you get to an age where you no longer want to deal with children, and I'm at that age. And so <laughs> on my giving up birthday, yes. uh, my husband, I don't like the word husband, so I call him Chefugee because he's a refugee and a chef, so he's a Chefugee. Okay. Uh, shout out to Falafel Food Truck. And uh, <laughs> uh, he walked in on my birthday carrying a cat, and he handed her to me, and he said, since you're so old, then you can't have children. I bought you this cat. So Beyonce gets all your love. And now. I wanted to name her Dolly after the great Dolly Parton. Okay. But Chef UG couldn't say it. So he said, if you want to name her after a singer, why don't you name her Beyonce? And when he said that, my cat totally reacted. And I was like, Beyonce? Beyonce? And the reality is, I swear to God, if I ever had a daughter, I would name her Beyonce. <laughs> so I'm so happy that my cat's named Beyonce. She travels all over the world with me. She sits on her butt instead of on her feet. She's very, very human. And she is, I should say, she's social media famous because I feel like your feeds have more images of her and stories about her than a lot of other stuff. There's a couple of things going on. I'm going to be yeah. honest. I'm exploiting her. Yeah. No. I saw Grumpy Cat. That's clear. Grumpy Cat made mad cat. Mm -hmm. And if my way to fame is on the back of my cat, let's ride. You're cool with that. (laughs) I'm cool with that. You're cool with that. Where can everyone follow you to see Uh, more of Beyonce? My website is maysoon.com. That's the easiest place to find me. Maysoon, just like the month of May is coming soon. Maysoon.com. Unfortunately, I'm Maysoon Zayed on Twitter. If you really want to know what happens in those 12 hours, the yoga, the TV shows, mm-hmm. the millions of other things I do on a daily Beyonce's basis, you've got to follow me on Twitter. At Unf- Maysoon Zayed. Yeah. Unfortunately, because somebody somewhere in the world in mm. 2007 or nine or whatever day Twitter was invented, somebody took at Maysoon. And they never tweeted again. At Maysoon's only... At Maysoon is inactive? Well, she has one tweet. I'm saying she's a she, but it has one tweet, Mm -hmm. and it's like, let's try this Twitter thing. And then it never tweeted again. Have you reached out to her? Yes. I tweet her about, like, 
at least Regularly. once a week. Yeah, I'm like, at me soon, I will pay you. Give me this. This feels like this could be your next goal. I feel like this is achievable too, Getting right? Instead of the, you know, just changing the conversation. It took me seven years America. to get a blue check mark. When did you get yours? Was it nice? A lot of struggles. It was <laughs> nice. It was nice. We're off on a tangent. But now. if you go to maysoon.com, yeah. you can easily click on my Twitter and my Facebook. M A Y S W O N. Yep. Maysoon Zayed, I'm going to let you go. Thank you so much for being here. I know when that was. I love being on your show. You can bring me back as your Ed McMahon whenever you want. Thank you for listening to Uncomfortable. If you like what we're doing, take a minute, leave us a rating and a quick review. It helps others to find these conversations, and we really just want to hear what you think. Plus, we've made it easy. Just click on the link in the description of this episode. If you have an idea for a show topic or a guest, leave it in the reviews or tweet at me, at Navazistan. That's N-A-W-A-Z-I-S-T-A-N, or use the hashtag UncomfortableTalk. Uncomfortable is a production of ABC News. New episodes post every two weeks on Tuesday mornings. I'm Amna Nawaz. Thanks for listening.